The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All and Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Jerry Hirsch. Jerry is the creative director of the Clean Makeup Line Say, as well as owner of the prettiest coffee shop you ever did see, Neighborhood. She was also one of the first of the blogging scene with her platform Leaf covering lifestyle, eating and fashion, because really, what else is there? And continues with Because I'm Addicted, where we all became addicted to our tips on living our best lives, focusing on what feels good rather than what just looks good. Jerry, I'm so excited for you to be here. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I feel like I always want more of you on social media. And so now I get it. You're your getting podcast. it. At, yeah. And you're going to get it in real time right now. I'm so excited. Yeah. I feel like you're the influencer's influencer. I, I hope that this is recording and that we're getting this because that's the biggest compliment I've ever gotten. It's true. Thank you. All right. Well, so listen, beginning at the beginning, one of the things we love exploring on this podcast is the idea that we alone get to design the type of life that we want to lead and that it's our opportunity and responsibility to define what success and happiness looks like to us. So that takes me to my first question, which is, did you have an idea of what having it all looked like to you growing up? I had a very clear sense of what not having it all looked like. And so for me, having had a really unconventional sort of fucked up childhood, I knew what I really wanted out of relationships and my adult life. I just didn't know what the path was necessarily to get there. Did that look like career, family? Mostly family. Yeah. In terms of things being unconventional, was it just... Oh my gosh, how much how much time do we have? <laughs> I mean, listen, we're on the clock, but whatever, yeah. you know. Well, the, the short version is my mom, my parents got divorced when I was super young and my mom just dated bad guy after bad guy, including somebody who literally went to jail for murder, drug addicts, like the worst of the worst. And like so bad that I actually moved my senior year of high school. My aunt and uncle became my legal guardians out of state. But I always stay on course. Like I, I, I feel like you're either wired just to be really good or you can deviate. I never had it in me to ever be bad. Like Mm -hmm. I was always scared of anything bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it sounds like you saw a lot of bad things growing up. Yeah. And in, but not in a, like, I don't, I don't feel like a victim. I feel like all of it has really shaped who I am and I'm really proud of it all. I feel like I can overcome anything. I push out a baby without an epidural. Like I feel like there's nothing that I can't do as a result of having gone through everything that I've been through. Right. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, first of all. And it's, I think that's one of those important things to remember is that sometimes it's like, just looking at you, obviously, you would never anticipate that. And also same thing in high school. I was always a straight A student. I was cheerleader. I ran for student body president in the midst of when I like everything, the craziest of the crazy went down with my mom. And people would never, ever know. I know how to just put on a smile and keep going. But that's why I feel like the context of your podcast is so great because you really, from the outside, things may look a certain way, but you have no idea what's going on in anybody's life. Right. And also in its own way, 
I sort of feel similarly, having grown up with a lot of dysfunction at home, it really helps you to hone in on what is paramount to you in terms of finding a partner and what mm-hmm. kind of behavior is acceptable and what you will stand for and what you won't. And in its own way, while you would never wish that on your own children, I think it has created such a strong individual with so much character in you, you yeah. know? So- I'm like, how do I raise good children if they have everything? Like, I know I'm good because I had nothing. Like, yeah. I, you know, you're going to have to incorporate some ugly behavior. Yeah, exactly. Well, I married somebody intentionally who came from like the polar opposite. He has totally perfect same background, mm-hmm. perfect parents, perfect childhood. So of course, like there's no such thing. You there know is that. no such thing. But I feel like I have a partner who I could really lean on for the things I don't know. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. It's so funny. Like when I got married, I was never someone who aspired to get married or really romanticized you know, weddings or even relationships because I hadn't seen a lot of successful relationships growing up. And so when I met my now husband and we decided to get married, it was very much like we were jumping into the deep end, holding hands. And I remember saying to someone, if I can't make this work with him, then I do not believe that marriage can really last. You know, like I'm equipping myself with someone who has all of these tools that I didn't have from growing up. And so it's so important in its own backwards way that you got to identifying what that was, even if I'm sure it was painful, you know, while you're going through it. Yeah. Well, you guys look like such a solid couple. So I I hope it's all going from on the outside. It looks great. I hope on the inside. As as long as it looks that way, you know, that we're doing our job. We need to be more like the refs. Well, Well, is that your husband's office? No, No. but you know what? In the world, like it could be, you know what I mean? You guys are always having fun and as a family, not yeah. just as a couple separately, which I really admire about, about you guys as a unit. Well, thank you. I remember actually running into you literally. Remember we were running in the marathon and by running, I mean, we did like two or three blocks, but it goes <laughs> past our house and yeah. you and Darren were having, I think bagels or coffee. Yeah. And it was so fun because like I got caught up in kind of the emotion of running a marathon. Have you ever done a marathon? No, but I just started running as my way to like lose the baby weight. I've always aspired to be a runner, but I don't really enjoy it. So I'm trying to make it happen. Do you think that you're going to set yourself up with a challenge like running a marathon? My goal is a 5K. I'm actually using an app that's couched to 5K and it helps train you to get there. And I'm embarrassed to ask this, but 5K is how many miles? It's three point something. Okay. And by the way, when I said running the marathon earlier, I meant very loosely and in air quotes, because like I said, <laughs> oh, no, you're in we only biker shorts and like Yeezys. I saw <laughs> right. And we only, and we only did those two, those two blocks, but it felt like I was part of it, you know? Yeah. Okay. So you knew very clearly what you didn't want mm-hmm. and that helped you to kind of figure out what sort of life that you wanted to, to build for yourself. So I spoke a little bit about your professional background, but Tell us a little bit about how, you know, how did you start this platform so early on? This was definitely ahead of its curve. Mm -hmm. You know, right now you can't throw a rock without hitting, you know, someone, what do you call them? Bloggers in the field? Oh yeah. (laughs) I I love that on your Instagram. But to create that platform and that destination at that time was really very progressive Mm -hmm. and you were ahead of your time. So professionally, did you work in design and content creation or was this kind of your first foray? No, content creation was super new then. I started a blog in 2005 while I was working as an analyst for Phil Anschutz at AEG. It was my first job out of college. I had studied finance and marketing and I had a serious job. So for the first time I found myself 
stuck at a computer all day long. I was like, oh my God, this, this is my life now. This is adulthood. It was shocking. And so obviously you kill a lot of time like popping onto Facebook. And one of my girlfriends sent me a link to my next exboyfriend.blogspot.com. And on this blog, which I'd never heard of the word blog before, this is 2005, she wrote about all the guys she was dating in New York while at law school. And they were like the most hilarious stories. And I couldn't believe she was able to publish this information on the internet. I was like, I want to know how you do this. I, like creating a website felt like impossible. You would see commercials on TV, build your website. But up until then, it was sort of mysterious. So I clicked on create blog and I just created a blog. You're like, well, Not, I am in front of a computer all day. Exactly. And I had no idea that there would ever be Instagram or that YouTube would be acquired by Google shortly after or that like, Twitter would launch. There was, there was literally no industry. It was pure curiosity. Now people are like, I'm going to follow this formula. I'm going to start a TikTok account. I'm going to start an Instagram account. I'm going to an editorial calendar. Yes. But that wasn't the case. I was just curious. And I still, like, that's how I still operate. Like, I was into clean beauty 10 years ago. And now all of a sudden, clean beauty is, like, commonplace. I think if you just follow your curiosities, you end up doing what you love. So this was kind of the wild, wild west at that time. So how did you transition out of your job, at what point did you know it was a real thing that you were ready to pursue full-time? Well, I knew it was a real thing when Elise Lonin, who's now the COO or CCO of Goop, chief content officer, at the time she was at Lucky Magazine and she emailed me and she was like, hey, we all at Lucky love your blog. We'd love to feature you in book. At that point, I realized it was sort of real and I started to take it a little more seriously, but I didn't quit my full-time job until I raised money for Leaf, which was now three jobs later. When YouTube was acquired by Google, I had this vision for how video could work on the web. And I went to all these investors and I was like, I believe that sponsored content is going to be a humongous business. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Right. right. You were like Nostradamus. Exactly. And like now it's a joke because you open Instagram and everything is hashtag ad. But to me, it was super clear. And I had a very clear vision of really beautiful how-to videos, which now doesn't sound interesting because there's a million of them. But at the time, if you Googled how to sear sea bass, it would be like a seven minute video from an older woman who you didn't care about. I was like, what if I condense these down into 30 seconds, make them really beautiful and have a huge library of how to do everything. And we did it. Okay. So, so you raised money and what was that process like? Obviously you had never done that before. I never done that, but I was really young and nothing to lose. Didn't, yeah. I was just like, I'm going to do this. There wasn't an option of not doing it. I wasn't, I had no fear. I think that's one of the, the best parts about being young and entrepreneurial is that you don't know how hard the failures feel and you don't know how much work it takes. When you're first starting out, it's, you just have rose-colored glasses on. Right. Know? And I think it's always important, though, that the founders share that with us because I think it's really easy to look at all these sort of glossy lives and these hashtag, you know, girl boss, hashtag love my jobs, and sometimes not realize how much effort and work. And like you said, sometimes heartbreak goes into these things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So how long did you have that platform? So... Because I know it was acquired... Yeah. So I, I sold Leaf TV in 2015 and I stayed on board in, for two years until 2017. And then I was pregnant with my first child. And for the first time, I wasn't a quote unquote girl boss. I was just pregnant and I was at home and I had my blog, but that was a real time of 
soul searching. Like, who am I if I'm not a working woman? Right. You felt like you lost some part of your identity by not having leaf anymore. Definitely lost part of my identity, but also suffered from comparison, just opening Instagram and seeing what all my contemporaries were doing. And you actually said this to me, this is, you probably don't even remember so long ago, we ran into each other in an event and I had just had my daughter and I, I think I was confiding in you that I was kind of struggling. And you said, you know, no one is immune to the amount of bragging that we consume every day on social media. And if, if that all happened in your real life, you wouldn't be friends with those people because they'd only be talking about themselves all day long. And I was like, yeah, you're so right. I don't remember saying that, but God, I'm pretty prolific. Yeah. And you know? here you are with the podcast. I it. mean, but no, it's, it's so true. You know, we're always talking about that here and, you know, just in life, it's the highlight reel. You see all these things and nobody's immune to the way it makes you feel. And no one is immune to putting up those cheesy posts sometimes too. You know, like I put up annoying, dumb things that sometimes I'm sure are taken in one way or another by somebody else, you know, and it's, it's like, goes back to that adage of like, we see things not as they are, but as we are. But I think there's a big shift happening now. I think for a while people saw the highlight reel and believed it because Instagram was so new. And now with even Instagram changing their own practices with likes and cracking down on filters that look like plastic surgery has been involved because that could be damaging psychologically to young women. I think people like the shades have been drawn and people know it's bullshit. And so many people have talked about their mental health suffering, whether they're a small influencer or a huge influencer. Now I think people want authenticity authenticity in a way that before just, it was about the glossy perfect. Of course. And that's, that's one of the things that we really love talking about here too. It's like, how do you create things that feel aspirational and still feel, you know, we all want to put our best foot forward, um, but doing so in a way that is, you know, also representative of what real life looks like, mm -hmm. you know, because like you said, especially with, you know, the younger generation and now, you know, for you raising two daughters, it's like you really want to be careful of what you can, you know, obviously we want to be careful of what we consume. And then for your children, you want, you want them to consume media and content that will make them feel celebratory of who they are, not less than in any way, not comparative, you know? Yeah. And we all do that to ourselves as adults. Well, talking about the professional stuff, I, you know, I love it the most when people are doing a ton of different things. And I think what you said earlier about always following your curiosity is so important because, you know, if you do it right, you never stop learning and you never stop growing. Right now you have your hand in so many different things, whether it's clean beauty or coffee. How did all of this come to be? Has non-toxic clean beauty always been your MO? I mean, you said you were interested in it 10 years ago, but is that something that you were really steadfast about or were you just like the rest of us kind of trying to do your best? No. So I, having raised money and spent my twenties building a business and working my ass off, I was so depleted and looked and felt my worst. And I just... I sort of hit a wall. And so I met with a nutritionist and she was like, you need to do the clean cleanse, order Dr. Junger's book, read about it and then order it. And I think you're going to feel really good with a hard reset of all your organs, 21 days, do it. I order the book and in his book, he talks a lot about what's in, on and around your body. And that was really the first time I started to contemplate what I was putting on my body. At the time, I only ate organic food, but I was still using all of 
normal, regular beauty products that, that I loved and that made me feel beautiful. And when I was reading this in his book, I was like, God, I, I haven't really contemplated what I'm putting on my largest organ, which is my skin. So if I'm going to do this cleanse for 21 days and I, I really want to feel as toxic free as possible, I'm going to fully do it. So I bought all clean beauty from Whole Foods. It was all like crunchy and it's not chic like it is now. And I did the cleanse and I felt amazing and I looked so much better and I just never turned back. I still used and I still use some products that are not like clean. But once you know that you're putting harsh chemicals on your body that are endocrine disruptors and that truly make you feel not good, it's hard to use them and not feel bad. Well, especially when you cited being pregnant, I'm sure during that time, you want to be especially cautious about what you're putting on your skin. Well, by the time I had kids, I was like, I'd been using clean for so long that I didn't have to make really any changes. Any concessions at that no, point. No, What you said earlier about that period of time where in a way from the outside, you've had this big career win, right? Where you sold this company that you built from the ground up. And then personally, it sounds like you also were in such a great place where you were married, you were expecting your first child, even though there's so many people who were probably looking at you wishing that they had what you had, that that felt like a weird time for you. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of fear when you take a step back from your career, especially when it's focused on the influencer space. Will I be relevant? Will people want to invest in me? What is my next business going to be? What's my idea going to be? Am I ever going to work again? Am I just going to be a mom now? You, you know, I think a lot of women like deal with that when they first, either when they get pregnant or when they finally have the baby, because it's your, if it is your choice to get pregnant and have the child, when you do have to go to back to work, whether that's going to an office or having some sort of, you know, freelance type job, you kind of want to be doing both so well. And it's really hard, right? Like something kind of has to give. And then like, for me, I was like, I can't, that can't be for my child. Like it has to be my career. Did you take time off from the blog? Not from the blog because like influencer blogging stuff for me, like I could do when she napped when she was little. And that was great. So I did have a little bit of a job and I needed that purpose. I needed to feel like, okay, I'm still doing something. I'm still an earner. It was just, that was important to me, but I didn't feel like I had that company that I was building and really proud of. Again, though, it's all perception too, because I'm sure that there's people who are in that stage of the foot is like seriously on the gas pedal of trying to build and from the outside, looking at the period of time where you're welcoming a new baby and you still are managing, like you said, you're, you, you're still creating content. You mm-hmm. still have this lifestyle that feels from the outside manageable in terms of figuring out a balance of both. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like the grass is always greener, I think, in every situation. Yeah, for sure. There was finally a point where I was able to separate my heart from my ego and realize that what I was doing as a mom was what I wanted to be doing. But it took me a while to really be able to embrace that and say like, you know what, I actually don't really need to be a quote unquote girl boss. That's that's not what I'm going to remember in the end of my life. I'm going to remember being a great mom, raising a great human and really being there for my girls. Don't you think that there's something about As women, we've been fed this notion that we can do anything. And in a way, simultaneously, we expect ourselves to do everything. 
And I think that that leads to a lot of complex feelings, like you said, about being able to, if you want to take a break from work and you want to focus on having a family, you know, it's honest of you to admit that because I think a lot of us share that, that it feels somehow a little bit negative. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like I read this quote today on Insta stories and it's sort of what we're talking about. Women are expected to work like they don't have children and raise children as if they don't work. It's so funny because we're laughing because I have that in. Oh, really? Yeah. That's, (laughs) that's in my, in my questioning, but I think that that's so true. And I think that again, it's a privilege to have the option of taking that time off. And a lot of people don't have that. And yet I think for whatever reason, especially now in our culture as women, I think we have devalued that singular focus on our families as though it's not as important as doing something outside of the home. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. And I don't know how to shift the culture because if you think about it, our society doesn't do anything to help moms, you know, or to help people who have welcomed new children to do both. You know, we don't have any government subsidized childcare or anything like a lot of other countries do where people can feel like they can achieve a certain amount of balance. So knowing that, and we always say having it all in quotes, it's most often that something has to give. And what is it that you want to give, you know, During that time, did you take a maternity leave? I think I remember Mm -hmm. you were very diligent about kind of creating content ahead of time. Yeah. So going back to what we talked about originally about having a hard childhood and knowing what I wanted my adult life to look like when I was pregnant and about to have this baby, I was like, so much of my life has been hard. I want this to be really easy. So I did everything I could to set that chapter up to be easy while I was having an amazing doula for birth, a post doula after. And like all this I know sounds like luxuries, which they were, this is like, I worked so hard and this is what I wanted to invest in. And I promised myself not to work for those three first three months to truly be present and allow myself the grace to be hormonal, be happy, be whatever I had to be. Cause you don't know what is going to come after birth. And it was the best thing that I did because it was, those three months were really tender. There was a lot of struggle with the career versus mom in, in that period. And I came out of that realizing, no, I want to be a mom right now. And I feel really good about that, but it, I had to go through those struggles to get there. As far as social media goes, how do you balance? Because obviously you're using that to grow your business. Mm -hmm. How do you balance that with protecting your mental health? It's funny. I always say that I feel like my biggest downfall in my career is that I'm not active enough on social media because I'm just not willing to compromise myself. The more time I spend on it, the like worse often I feel. And I'm not really wearing, willing to share a ton of my husband and my children just to protect their privacy. So it's hard because I, I could be way more active and probably find more success, but that's not really the success in life that I'm looking for. Right. And that's going back to the idea that we actually get to define what success looks like to us because Mm -hmm. somebody else's definition of what success means may not fulfill you. Yeah. No lie, your voice counts. So this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote in the upcoming elections this November. 
please text the word VOTER to 26797 to check your registration. You will also receive reminders for all local, state, and federal elections and your polling locations. Don't forget to follow I Am A Voter for more civic engagement opportunities. So Jerry, shifting gears, we all know that the present is a gift and that we aren't promised tomorrow. And I know that this must ring especially true for you, as I know a little bit about the traumatic situation that you went through with your husband. And I was hoping that you would share it with us. Sure. So my husband and I got married in March, 2015. And that following January, he went for a run, which he did every day. He was 37. He ran like three to six miles a day. Great health. It happened to be raining that day and we live in the hills. And I was like, please don't go for a run. It's raining and people drive so crazy. And he was like, I was like, and if you do, please just run in the flats, which we never, he never ran in the flats. He always ran in the hills. And that day while he was on his run, his heart spontaneously stopped and he was found completely unresponsive. He didn't have a pulse. He wasn't breathing. And the sheriff, who was the first responder, gave him CPR for five minutes, which is a very long time to give CPR until the medics came and the paramedics got his heart beating again. He was taken to Cedar sinai as a John Doe because all he had was his cell phone and he didn't have his medical ID set up. Oh, so they're not able to identify him. No, they had to wait till his phone rang and they said, can you identify whose phone this is? is? And then they looked him up in the system and he was in Cedar sinai system. So... Medical ID, I just want to touch on that quickly because after we came out of it, the social worker was like, please set up medical ID. In your medical ID, put your emergency contact, your blood type, if God forbid you needed to have some sort of you know, transfusion, any medication you're on, because sometimes your medication can compromise whatever they have to do for you know a multitude of reasons, whatever reason you're brought into the hospital. He had a stent put into his heart. They found a 99% blockage, which... There's no genetic history. He'd been to the cardiologist three months prior, did a full workup. There was nothing. It's a spontaneous event that can happen in, in anyone. They actually call this type of heart attack the widow maker, which is such an aggressive term, especially when they say it to you in the hospital when it's your husband, because so much has to happen quickly in order for, for people to survive. The survival rate is like 1%. Then he was in a coma for three days. I can't even, so how did you find out? Did he not come home? Did it get to the point where you started to worry about him and go out looking for him? No. So I I was on my way home from the gym and his brother called me. His brother was listed as his emergency contact info on Cedar sinai And he was like, Hey, are you driving? And I was like, yeah, what's up? And he was like, can you pull over? And I'm like, that's never, never what you want to hear. Um, So I pull over and he's like, I just got a call. D is at Cedars and you need to get there immediately. And he didn't tell me anything else. He didn't tell me. Like, so in my mind, I'm, I'm driving there. And I think that like he fell and you like broke his ankle or God forbid he like got hit by a car, but I'm imagining kind of like a movie scene where you get hit by a cab in New York and then you get up and walk away. Like I didn't, I couldn't imagine in my wildest dreams. Right. And why would you? Like you said, he's healthy. He's 37. He'd just gone for a checkup and everything was fine. Yes. Yes. I never thought I was going to walk into like a life support. This is the most terrifying thing that I've ever heard. Also, because there's nothing that he could have done differently. And there was nothing to suggest that this would have happened. Mm -hmm. 
So I get there and I was greeted by a social worker who took me into her room with a couple of cardiologists who basically told me they didn't think that he was going to survive, that he was found unresponsive. They don't know how long he was without oxygen. And they didn't know the damage to his heart at that point. He was in heart surgery. He was already in heart surgery by the time you arrived. Yeah. So Cedar sinai has put into place very strict rules around what happens when somebody comes in the emergency room. They do, I don't know exactly what the protocol is, but basically it's like a few different scans to try to figure out very quickly what they need to do. So yeah, they were putting a stent in his heart, which again, not what I anticipated. Um, Right. When he went out for a run that morning. No. How long, how long was he in a coma for? They put him in a hypothermic coma for three days. And the reason they do that is to keep all of the organs from swelling and the brain from swelling. So those three days, there was no, we had no idea whether or not he was going to have brain activity and wake up. And I can't imagine what those three days were like for you. Well, I got a, a Hashimoto's from the, the stress, right. I got an autoimmune disease because those three days were just, you feel all the feels and you know, you're on, you're in, in the intensive care unit. There was a, someone in the room next to him, also a young guy who had some heart problem, didn't make it. And I'm, his wife is crying on my shoulder. It was just, it, the whole thing was so surreal watching, seeing your super healthy husband who you just life married? Support, who just married? Not being able to breathe for themselves, covered in every plug and IV, and shivering because of the hypothermic. It, it was like literally a nightmare. And I, I'm like, fuck! I finally get the life that I have been working towards, and now it's being taken away from me. Like I, I, I was just like, this life's not fair. I went through a time with my daughter where she had a very scary health situation, and. Similarly, it was so out of nowhere. There's no preparation, not that there would be for it, but it was the first time in my life where I really recognized that without her getting better or without her health returning to what it was, literally nothing mattered. And that it really, I could be very resolute all of a sudden in what was worth caring about and what wasn't. And I remember so vividly during that time praying to God that I would never complain about anything ever again if he would make my little girl okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you did that, if you feel like you had conversations. And if so, also full disclosure and thank God she is okay. I do still complain about things. And it's like you have these moments in life where you realize what matters and what doesn't. And I think it always shifts and changes your perspective. And sometimes I forget that too. You know, I still get worked up about things that don't really matter. I wonder for you during those three days, was there any sort of like concession that you made or was there any, did you talk to God? What, you know, did you pray? What was your path through? I think I did anything and everything that I thought would make him okay, whether that was praying, staying by his side and turning on ESPN Sports Center because that's like what he loved. And I was trying to like normalize the situation to having crying fits, not literally staying awake the entire time to make sure that not one nurse gave the wrong dosage. Like I, I was so obsessed with just making sure that he came out of it. I don't think I was like saying I will do any, like 
dear God, like if, if you, if he survives, like I'll do any, that wasn't really where my head was. I was like, you know, very practical. Like I've got to make sure he survives mode. And what was it like when he came through that? Because you had no idea whether or not he was going to be waking up with full brain function or if there was going to be a lot of challenges ahead of you. Yeah. So the, the neurologist really prepared us for him not to be waking up. It was me and his parents and his brothers. He's one of five. Two of his brothers were here. And it's a slow process to, to take somebody out of a hypothermic coma. First, you have to take them off of all of the drugs, like the propofol and whatnot, and then slowly warm their body back up. And so the neurologist would come in and he would say very loudly, like, Darren, if you can hear me, wiggle your toes and nothing would happen. He'd come back, Darren, if you could hear me, wiggle your fingers, nothing would happen. By like the fourth time when he came in and he did that, he was like, Darren, if you can hear me, wiggle your toes. He wiggled his toes. He was like, the next function is if he can lift his arm because he, he can't talk. He has a breathing tube in for him. He, he said, if he could lift his arm, that shows greater brain function. So he was like, Darren, if you can hear me, give us a... <laughs> Give us a thumbs up. No, of course. So he, he lifted his hand and he gave a thumbs up and we all just like... Lost it. Lost it. We were like, oh my God. You know, like it, just the tears of joy. The next... Then the, every, every step of the way, can he talk? Can he walk? And every, he just... It was truly a miracle that he had all of those capabilities. And then we named our firstborn after the man who saved him. Sheriff Leobardo Trujillo. Our daughter's name is Leo. Did that that sheriff get the call or was it happenstance that he was driving by or? So a couple was walking. He, so he, he never ran in the flats ever. He happened to go down behind Sunset Tower where there's tons of apartment buildings. A couple was walking their dog and they called 911 and he was the first responder. And what's so crazy is after he gave CPR, he just got in his car and went on to the next heroic event doesn't make a log of it. It's not something that the sheriffs have to report. So it was actually really hard for us to track him down and figure out who actually saved him. Same thing with the paramedics. You know, we all wanted to look this man in the eye, give him the biggest hug, shake his hand, thank him, do everything we can for him. Now he's a big part of our family. He's won a life-saving award from the sheriff's department for saving Dee's life because it's not what their job really is. I would never even know that a sheriff would know how to give... CPR necessarily. They don't all know. They don't all know. Which again is the, just the universe of all of those things coinciding at the same time that he happened to not be in the hills, that he happened to be there where you'd asked him to go that day. And that it was this sheriff. So, someone else could have shown up and they could have said, no, Paul's not breathing, call it in. But he, he says, you know, the first thing I did was look up to see if he jumped and I turned him over to see if he's a drug addict. I could see that he was warm. He had his headset in. I, I saw that it, he had a wedding band on. I thought, man, this guy's really young. We got to try to do everything I can to save him, which is the same thing that the surgeon who put the stent in his heart told us. He said, when I saw him on my table and I saw how young he was and how handsome he was, he was like, I had to do everything I could to make sure that he survived. I didn't know if he had children or I knew he had a wife, but I had to, it was my responsibility Oh my God, Jerry, I can't even imagine going through this. How has that changed what you value? Oh my God, it's changed and how everything. You, how you even deal with time. I just like have everything super clear. Super clear. I just, 
toxic relationships, the bullshit. I just don't, I don't really have room for it. I'm all about just, you know, being with my family, doing the things that bring me joy and trying to cut out as much of the negativity and toxic noise as possible. Yeah. And all the noise. Yeah. I know you guys opened up neighborhood together mm-hmm. and was that sort of a lifelong dream of Darren's and his family? Yeah. So him and his brother love coffee and they love business ventures and they decided to do this together. His brother coincidentally almost lost his life when he was 16 years old. I think they had this, they have this bond of like understanding what it's like to almost have it taken away in a way that you don't understand unless you've experienced it. Even as the wife, like I don't truly understand what it's like to wake up having almost died. Well, you know what it's like to wake up almost having lost your husband. Yes. Yes. And that's what he always says. He's like, you know, for me, it was easy. Like I just woke up. I didn't suffer through the heart. He didn't get the Hashimoto's. He didn't get the Hashimoto's. He didn't have those three days of not knowing and the stress and yeah. Well, I love, even though as trying as that situation was, that it has provided you with so much clarity and hopefully going back to the conversation we had in the beginning, some of that noise that we struggle with as to what's important and what's worth my time and what am I supposed to be and who am I supposed to be, that mm-hmm. that has helped it become more clear for you. Yeah. That the only thing that really matters for you is your family and time with them and, and doing what feels authentic for you guys. Yeah. And truly being, finding what makes you happy, which I think is, it's always adjusting, you know? Yeah, of course. And I mean, speaking of adjusting, now you have a much better sense, but what does having it all look like to you today? I think having it all is really just feeling really content and that's fleeting. You know, some days you've you have it and some days you don't. For me, I have it when I like have my two girls home and my husband home. Like that's when I feel my best. Like when we're all together, I know everyone is safe and everyone's good because the rest of it doesn't matter. What's your having it all? Oh man. Well, that's something that I'm always trying to figure out. And I think what the best part of having these conversations with people is that no matter what path we're all on, I think we all have so many similarities that really, no matter how much outside success or material things people have, what I have learned about myself and others that I think is the through line is that really it's about feeling that the people that you care about are healthy and happy and that you are being as authentic to yourself as you can be and understanding that time is limited and making the most of the time that we have. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it changes day to day, Mm -hmm. you know, but trying to put the focus on what feels good on the inside and not what looks good on the outside. Yeah. On a really practical level, what's something that you do day to day? And it could be a practice. It could be a service. It could be a product, something that you use or have integrated into your life that you feel has made it easier, better, it's really, really simple. And maybe this isn't like the answer you're looking for, but no, I'm looking for anything that not having my phone on me. Perfect. And being like fully present with my girls. I don't use my phone in front of my daughters. I literally leave it in another room. And when I do, and I'm not totally present, that's when I like feel really bad. And I feel like I wasted that time with them. I like immediately regret it. So 
keeping it away and being totally there because they're so, they see all of it. Like my daughter likes to carry around like a pretend phone, which like breaks my heart. Cause I'm like, that's such a sad reflection of society that we all have our phones in our hands. So I try not to do that and just be yeah. where you are. Yeah. And actually lit. I love that. Jerry, thank you so much for being here today. And thank you so much for sharing all of your thank stories. You for, having me. for anybody who doesn't follow you, where can we find you? I'm on Instagram, G-E-R-I-H-I-R-S-C-H. And your blog is? Because I'm addicted. And if you're interested in clean beauty, Say is S-A-I-E. And you can purchase us direct to consumer online at Say Hello, or we're available at Goop and Folane. And remind us, where can we stop in for some Wi-Fi free coffee? Oh, at Neighborhood, 133 South La Brea. All right, we'll see you there soon. Okay, thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode of Having It All and Other Lies. I've been having so much fun talking to and learning from all these amazing women, and I hope you're enjoying it too. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, and also follow along at Having It All Podcast and swing on over to my page at Sarah underscore Riff. I love hearing from you guys, so please keep up the DMs and emails. And if there's anyone that you want to hear from, let us know. In the meantime, we will look forward to seeing you next week.